Welcome back to the Perfect Fuckups podcast, where we invite founders to tell their stories of fucking up, what they did, and what you, our listeners, can learn from the chaos. Today, we're going to hear a tale of getting fired from one's own startup. We have invited David Benzel to join us for this episode. David is currently general partner at Accelerase, but today we are talking about when he founded Screen Ticket. Get ready to take an insightful and honest look at the ups and downs of David's journey. Hi, David. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining the podcast. It's, we've really been looking forward to it, um, but I think we should just jump right in. So your founder journey began way back when you started Globin. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, we started it back in 2006 and we were three co-founders. Actually, we were four co-founders at the time. So I was a student at the business school in Aarhus and I had a couple of friends who were also students at the time, though not from the business school, but that was the idea that we were covering, you know, different roles and having different uh, skill sets. So one, my friends were studying economics at the university. And then I had a friend who wanted to be an accountant. And then I had one who was a software developer. And we basically, the two of us got an idea and basically then asked the two others to join. And it was a very typical startup idea. There's nothing original about it. But to us, it seemed original because the problem hasn't been solved and it still really hasn't been solved. So it's one of those things that all students ask themselves, what are we going to, you know, do? Because we were all about like experiencing the city, experiencing just social life and going out, right? Because we were students and we sort of lacked a good place to find events. Not a new problem <laughs> has been tried endless amounts of time. Um, but there was a caveat though, because what was happening in 2006 was that we were getting internet on our phones. They actually hadn't arrived yet, but there were rumors about an upcoming smartphone from Apple. And already at the time, the phones could actually access the internet, but it wasn't on a smartphone experience as we know today. We call them feature phones and they had a, you know, a little a keyboard. Uh, a keyboard yeah. yeah. And so it was a very composite experience. So not a lot of people actually created content for those kind of phones. So we thought, hey, why don't we make the first sort of ticketing and event site that actually were digitally or natively built for phones. So that was the idea behind Globin. And one of our innovation was at the time that we could make something that actually rendered correctly on a phone, on a feature phone, just not one feature phone, but array of different feature phones, because there were no standards at the time. There were no Android, there were no, you know, all of it were different browsers, different operating systems from different small producers. How did you come with the name Globin? Does it symbolize anything or? Yeah, so it's a pretty uh, stupid name, but the <laughs> idea was at the time that uh, Google was big. So we thought anything that started with G sounds yeah. like techie. So it has to be something that sounds like Google and because it would Gmail, G different kind of things <laughs> like IO later became a thing, right? Yeah. And so on. <laughs> so at the time it was G before I <laughs> and everything was to call, or to be called I. So it was the G thing. And then it basically just replaced the clubbing with the G. So it became Clubbing, mm -hmm. which is a pretty stupid name uh, looking back. But at the time it was available on .com, uh, which, was, uh, which was one of the mm -hmm. key propositions. And what made you want to found your own company? Well, I think I personally, in my youth, I had a lot of odd jobs, just different weird jobs. And 
I think I learned through that process that that was not going to be the rest of my life. So everything from, you know, handing out newspapers to, you know, selling subscriptions on the phone, oh, yeah. even, you know, on the streets and even trying to be in a factory. I tried that for just a summer job, but all these kind of odd jobs and most of them were characterized by not being very intellectually stimulating and I didn't really own my own time. So I definitely got an idea very early on that I wanted to one day create my own company where I would actually love to go to work. So that was, that was one of the reasons. Have you had any ideas to just get employed and have a happy life? Actually, <laughs> if you didn't start the business, I, I right? think I would be unable to have a happy life really being <laughs> an employed somewhere because I constantly get ideas and I cannot <laughs> not pursue them. And if mm. someone told me, you know, you have to, this is not your job, just stick with the task, that would make me miserable. So we didn't even think about it. It was I didn't even think about it, no. That's awesome. Okay, nice. And how did it went with Clubin? Yeah, so it actually went okay, I would say. So we were four co-founders. Unfortunately, uh, we were two full-time co-founders and the other two, we had a little bit of trouble getting as, you know, engaged in the startups. That's a very typical startup problem when you have multiple co-founders and you see sort of asymmetric engagement in the startup. So we suffered a little bit from that, I would say, but in the general, we got a product off the ground and we raised funding for the company, which was at the time, I didn't think that was a particularly big, you know, accomplishment at the time, because I thought that's just what you do. You go and raise funding. But today, like four students who had never done a company before actually raising money, today I can see that was pretty unique. But we did raise money and we did build the product and we did launch it and it didn't really work. Yeah, so I learned a lot from that. Why do you think it happened? You didn't talk to the users or you, you thought you know everything? Yeah, so it, the product worked in theory, but it didn't work oh. in practice. So essentially, we signed up a couple of places that arranged events and we agreed with them that now they would be able to sell the event on our mobile site and they could sell the tickets through the phone. But at the time, and back in 2006, 2007, people actually didn't really have internet on their phone. So in order to activate the internet on your phone, you would actually have to call your telco and they would send you this cryptic, <laughs> okay. uh, weird uh, recipe that you would have to follow and you have to go into the settings and restart your phone multiple times. And then after that, you had no idea what that would cost you because suddenly you started using internet mm -hmm. and it was pretty pricey back in the day. So it was a typical geek kind of problem where we were so focused and so oriented towards what was possible, what's the new mm -hmm. technology here, but we completely forgot about the user experience. So the problem we wanted to solve was that we wanted to make it easier to buy these tickets and find the events and so on, but it actually became a lot more cumbersome because it was only easy if you knew how to do. And our technology definitely didn't solve that. What happened afterwards? Has the company went to zombie mode, as we call it, or? So basically, pretty quickly, we realized that this business is not going to fly. And we realized that when we started understanding who our customers were and what they really wanted. So we started to talk to a lot of event organizers and they basically all told us, we will, we think it's interesting. We would like to use your platform if it can sell a lot of tickets. 
And we were like, yeah, no one really knows us yet, but it would be great if you promoted our service and put our name on all your advertising. They were like, why Sounds would we good. do that? <laughs> because we want to sign up with you if you can sell a lot of tickets. So their problem and what they wanted to get sold was basically to be sure that they could sell a lot of tickets. What we were selling was a new way to buy tickets and they were not interested in a new way to buy tickets. And we realized pretty quickly that they all just stayed with their existing ticket vendors, especially something like Ticketmaster, because one of the value purposes of Ticketmaster is that they will sometimes, in most, most cases, actually, they will guarantee some kind of minimum ticket sale for you. And that's, well, that's really the value proposition. That's what they're selling. And that is what the event organizers want to buy. They don't want to buy technology. They want to buy ticket sales. And we did not have that product. So we realized that at some point I had to pull. And, <clears throat> you know, speaking of, of tickets, your next startup was Screen Ticket. Yeah, so, so this is a little bit confusing because this company didn't actually sell tickets, but it was called Something With Ticket. The, the reason why it was called Something With Ticket was because at the time during the Globin days, we had started patenting a technology. And the technology we had started patenting was that we had the problem of people buying a digital ticket. But at the time, one of the big concerns were this ticket can be forged. What? And everyone told us, but can I just take a picture of the ticket or like copy it and on my phone? So we started getting into the development of some kind of uniqueness of the ticket. So each of them got a set number. They were online. It constantly got checked up towards the server. That created this little animation that showed it wasn't a picture and so on. And many of these things that we sort of invented at the time we started patenting, we called that technology, we called that the screen ticket technology. So when Globin folded and we simply gave up, we took out the technology and said, can we build something around this? And this time with my second company, and now we're only two out of four co-founders left that moved on with this company, formed a new team and got new investors. And this time the product was one that we knew that customers wanted. What was the big mm -hmm. difference before? Because we just thought, hey, we can make something for phones that we want, <laughs> but we didn't know what our customers wanted. Yeah. So the second company was driven by customer demand. Mm -hmm. And that also meant that it had a completely different level of success. How were the first years in screen ticket? Yeah, so basically, right, we launched with our first customer because it, during that time of the whole debacle with Globin, we realized that there was someone else or someone else basically told us, we think we could use your technology for something different. We think we can use your technology to create uh, mobile advertising sites. So you have basically created something that makes it really easy to render something on a phone. But there's a lot of big advertisers out there who want to start advertising on phones. They want to create content for phones, but they have the problem that they cannot really build something easily that works on all the phones. But we have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can we make something that works on all the phones? Because if you had a Vodafone and you had a NTT Docomo a phone and whatever they were called at the time, uh, it had to work on all of them. And we had built something that could do that. So they start, hey, maybe you could build an advertising product for this. And then Coca-Cola came to us and basically said, we would, like to, we would like to start advertising on phones and we would like help to do that. And we said, hey, we know how to put something on a phone. 
And then we decided to launch Green Ticket. How did you get in contact with Coca-Cola? It happened through the media agency or OMD at the time. Okay. So a person at OMD who we knew that Coca-Cola wanted this because they were the media agency of Coca-Cola. Cool. And just to go back a bit, how did you feel about Clubbing after folding up? Well, I think that was one of the cases where you so immediately find a new girlfriend or boyfriend that you don't ah, really that, think about no. it, right? Because at the same moment as it folded, we already had that input. Mm -hmm. We already had talked to this person who said, I think it would work for advertising. So when we decided to fold it, it was also immediate decision. Hey, we, the one reason why we folded were because we had this other direction we mm -hmm. could go. Yeah. So it was like, let's decide we're not going to do this. We're not going to spend mm -hmm. any more time on it. Maybe we should try this other thing. So didn't have too much time to think about it. How did you think differently in building a team in a screen ticket in comparison with Clubman? Yeah, so Clubman was just a friends. And basically a part of, I think, something that most founders do is part of their dream is to have a, a band with their friends and just hang out with their friends <laughs> and just you know have a project with your friends. And that was that. And we basically put together a team, a club that wasn't put together because these were the best people for the job, but because we knew each other wanted to do something together where it, that might work, but obviously it is even better if these people are specifically selected for their experience of their skill set. So we were two people left from the old team and we started assembling a new team. And this time we went much more deliberate about it, I would say, and got people who had been working in the phone and mobile phone industry on the technical side to help us where before it was like just random friend who could do some software, right? So at this time we went much more deliberate about asking ourselves what skills do we need in order to be able to build a product uh, that would uh, satisfy our customers. That sounds like you're bulletproof. What do you mean bulletproof? That you cannot fail. Oh, yes. <laughs> it sounds like the recipe for sure, sure success. So we knew a customer and we had a team that executed. In the beginning, it felt like it. So in the beginning, we raised the money from three different funds, including Accelerate, where I'm working now. So we did raise quite a lot of money at the time, the standards of the time. And we uh, got Coca-Cola as our first customer. I think our second customer was McDonald's and uh -huh. Burger King and H&M. So basically That's all of the big brands, yeah. I would say, I think the, the big telcos also used it. So it went really, really well. What were some of the highlights of the journey going up? If well, you it was definitely all these big brands, right? Yeah. And then actually our technology, we started getting these nominated for these awards because our technology was used in advertising. And I didn't know anything about the advertising industry, but I quickly learned that there's an industry that uh, likes to celebrate itself a lot. So, and they uh, second, I think only maybe to the film industry, they put together these huge award shows and there's a lot of prizes, there's a hype. We started getting invited into that. And one of the first things was, I remember being like invited to Cannes for some kind of fancy oh. marketing advertising festival where our technology had been used in Coca-Cola. And our technology, basically the Coca-Cola advertising campaign where our technology was used, uh, had won like a huge prize and we were invited to go there. And then we were invited to London and invited to New York for all of these advertising festivals. Because at the time, the advertising industry was very attuned to what's mobile. It was what later would become social, right? So that was yeah, the mobile yeah, yeah, thing. And now yeah. 
mobile was the big news and we were one of those uh, technologies that they, they looked to. So it was kind of a promotional thing for your company, right? All of those events. You were mentioned there as the partners? We were mentioned the... there. Okay. We were mentioned there and we got invited to them. And yeah, so that was one of the big highs going up. Mm-hmm. And as a startup founder, you love that. You love yeah. that. <laughs> of course, you love all the, you know, admiration. You love all the publicity. You love, you know, looking like a Pop success. Variety, who yeah, doesn't, yeah, yeah. who doesn't, who doesn't like that, right? But that's not the same as having a business. Mm-hmm. And that is a little bit of the problem that we entered into later, I think. Did it take focus or was it too... Appealing. It was definitely too appealing. So as a startup founder, you often gravitate to what feels good. I think we just mm-hmm. do as humans. Yeah. And one of the things that feels good is just to, you know, people like you interviewing me mm-hmm. in the right now and being on a stage and, you know, receiving awards. I think we should spend any five minutes on LinkedIn, you'll see <laughs> majority of those pictures are people who sort of are being celebrated somehow. And But that is not how you build a company. And that is not really what, what lays the foundation of a healthy company. But you do gravitate towards doing a lot of that instead of maybe doing some, some other things you actually should be doing. So if you went back in time, would you attend all of those events again? No, no. Okay. And, and today we, we say to startup founders, don't go to events. And if I do due diligence on the company and look up a founder before, meeting that founder, if I see a wall of just pictures from different events and their pitch decks are many of them holding different awards and being nominated and this and this and this, it's one of the things that make me less interested. It doesn't mean we won't invest, but it's not one mm-hmm. of those things that makes us excited because what we can see now from having in business or been investing for 13 years, it is that there is no correlation between those who are good at attracting attention around themselves as persons mm-hmm. and those who actually build up really successful businesses. In fact, I would say there's probably the opposite of it. There's a negative correlation there. Interesting. So we got some highlights here. And what was the point where it turned around? Yeah. So what happens is then when you start getting success, is that you start projecting that success into the future. And we all draw on these hockey curves. So basically we had raised money and we have gotten these, these flagship customers and we basically told our investors and to ourselves that that level of success could be scaled globally. So what I said, we had Coca-Cola as a customer, but we had Coca-Cola Scandinavia as a customer. We had McDonald's as a customer, we had McDonald's Denmark as a customer. So these were local representatives of bigger companies, H&M that was also Nordic H&M, it wasn't global H&M. But because we didn't really have experience with scaling anything, our assumption was like, you know, we'll just go knocking on the door on the Coca-Cola in the U.S. and Atlanta. We'll basically say, see, they're buying it here in the Nordics. You should buy it in the U.S. as well. That must be the easiest thing. Well, they already bought it. They probably know about us Sounds already. Simple. They're just going to open yeah. the door and like, <laughs> finally you are here. And uh, that's what we thought. And we told our investors that and we projected it and we got more money. And what happens is then when you raise those money and you make revenue forecast and you promise that in this quarter we'll sell this much and in next quarter, quarter after that, 50, 50% growth or something like that. And that's what you, and, and we believed it because our stock was so good. Then of course you get to these board meetings, that future becomes today and these numbers become increasingly difficult to reach because all of that market and all that sales were based on the assumption that we could, you know, get 
customers in bigger external markets. That's just proved to be much more difficult than we realized. What was the main challenge difficulty-wise going from maybe what I hear is a bit more of a home market to, to the U.S.? Yeah, so I'm not even sure exactly what went wrong besides that we did not put adequate effort and resources into trying. But I'm not even sure if we did, we would have succeeded. The U.S. in particular is a very difficult market. If you just look at the history of Danish startups, very few Danish startups have actually succeeded in the U.S. Take some things as Trustpilot, which is also an Accelerator alumni, and I got funding for Accelerator at the same year as Peter Muhlmann also went through Accelerator with Trustpilot. Trustpilot never got real success in the U.S., even though it's a huge company, right? You look at something to just eat, never really got success in the U.S. Why do you think so? Is there any pattern to this? Well, I think... First of all, people underestimate how big U.S. is, mm-hmm. how many people are there, and just how much people are fighting and companies are fighting for the attention among businesses and consumers in the U.S. And the amount of money they spend to get their attention is something that dwarfs anyone's imagination mm-hmm. on this side of the pond. So going to the U.S. and trying to grab the attention of people is just an immense task. So even very well-funded companies, and we just had couple of notable failures of companies trying to go to the U.S. in home delivery of groceries and food that, that didn't succeed either, right? So it's just a very difficult market. So I don't even think we would have succeeded had we done, done the right thing, which would have been to put people on the ground, really spend time over there, moving there, put significant effort and focus into the U.S. We, what we did was that we found some distribution partners and set up a local entity with them and sort of joint venture style, but we didn't actually go there. We just thought, hey, we'll let some other people run mm. with the, our reference cases and then we'll just knock in the door. I, I mean, we thought that they would be opening the door for us, right? So that was definitely not the right approach. Very good reflection. There is one <clears throat> word, yeah, channel stuffing. And the thing that we have found out when we were looking up to you, tell us more about this and what happened around channel stuffing in the company. Yeah, channel stuffing is when you sell through channels, that means partners or distributors and so on, and you basically stuff that channel with all your product. And we did that at the end of the journey here because what happened was that it became increasingly difficult for us to reach those sales targets. And so what in all practicality happened was at the end of the quarter, just before a board meeting, I would basically call up all our partners in different countries and just beg them to buy something from us so we could send an invoice. The problem was at the time, it was really before SaaS was invented, the way that you charge for software today. So at the time it was the dominant model or much more usual, more common model was to buy for usage of your product. So mm. basically we sold these credits to use our product and we basically would call up our partners at the end of the quarter and let's just buy some credits for us, buy some credits of us. I'll discount you maybe 70% if you just buy a lot of credits. The problem is though those credits sits with them mm. and they have to spend those credits before they would actually need to buy more credits and in and the end they would sit with so many credits that they would never use them, never, but it would take them maybe years to use all those credits. Mm. So basically, you basically exhausted your own channels and you bought 
a little bit of time, but selling the future in that way. That's, that is channel stuffing. And it's something I think a lot of companies do to some extent sometimes, but we just overdid it. It sounds exhausting to be in that race against time, I guess. But how, how long did you use that strategy? Yeah. So as a founder or anyway, for me in that VC venture journey, you just enter into a different mode in your head. It's like you are on a racetrack and you're sprinting like the final in the Olympics and there's nothing you will not do to win. I mean, we got the money, we were off to the races, we had employees. I mean, we had our entire identity at stake at this point. This was who I was at the time. All of my peers from the business school, they have got consultants, consultancy jobs and all of those things, right? And worked at corporates. And they already started making a lot of money and bought their first house and all of those things. But I was still a startup founder, even though that we had, you know, raised millions in venture capital, I didn't get a lot of salary. Mm -hmm. My salary, I think was like 30,000 Danish kroner and my peers were making 40, 50,000, right? Mm -hmm. And were already driving Audis and all of that. So I had my entire identity at stake. This must succeed because you have. Your identity, you have your family, you have your co-founders, you have your employees, you have your investors who you want to satisfy. So you get into this, it's like, it's a little bit weird to explain unless you've been there, but you get into this situation where there's nothing you will not do to succeed and re meet those, those goals. And that, that is healthy to some extent, because that means that you will just get things done that normal people will not get done. And that's how a startup succeed. But sometimes that also means you do things that can be damaging to your company in this, in this case anyway. Yeah, but it was like an emergency mode, right? You were trying to find ways how to get out of it. What was at the end of the racetrack? Yeah. So the problem was we were basically milestoned on our investments and something that you did a lot of previously, you still see it today, but a little less than, than at the, in those days. That means if you raised money, you didn't actually get all the money. What you did was you get the first chunk of the money. And then if you reach your goal, you would get more money. There's second trance and so on. Based on revenue? Or? Based on revenue. Okay. Our source revenue and sales targets. And that means that was the only thing you wanted mm -hmm. to run after. And if you didn't hit that goal, then they would not invest. And because it was a venture funded company, our expenses was much higher than our revenue. And that meant you would essentially be bankrupt the same day as they did Easter Tranche. And a lot of startups have been in that situation. But we were in that situation too. And that is what was end of each of those uh, goalposts were another trench of uh, funding that kept you alive and kept you being able to do more of, of the company and, and hopefully reaching the, the final milestone one day. What was the last moment where you knew that this is the last day of the company? I'm not sure there was a specific event that made that clear to me, but it's slowly dawned on me that the future goals we're setting one or two quarters out would be extremely difficult to reach. So when you just made it by, you know, begging your customers to buy more and just made it for a quarter and you knew that those customers who were your best customers, there was no way I could call them in the next quarter and sell mm -hmm. anything. And you had a goalpost that was like significantly higher than the one you just cleared. You sort of knew that this is coming to an end. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was a process of just not seeing how we could reach these, 
these milestones. How did you handle it? Was there some sort of conversation with the investors or with your co-founder where you talked about how to get out of this situation? Or did you just keep fighting? For a long time, I just kept fighting because at the time, I think I was, I think a lot of startup founders are people who are characterized by what I would call an internal locus of control. That means mm. that you basically harbor the idea that whatever situation you're in, you're in control of the situation, you can change that. And and if you are in a, a situation that you don't want to be in, it's because of no other faults than your own. And thus you, you, you have the power to change it. And so for a long time, we were just fighting and basically telling ourselves that we can do this and just have to, you know, believe in it and not let people deter us. And I think I read a book called The Magic of Thinking Big at the time or so these kind of things. So you just, you just reach for a lot of self-help books and start believing in some of these. So you try to stay positive or? Try to stay yeah. positive as long as possible. Yeah. What was the moment when you left the company? Yeah. So. In the tail end of the company, we had started to get a little bit of traction in Canada. So remember our internationalization when we expanded to seven countries, US, Canada, was Holland, Sweden, Australia, I think, and then other countries. And in Canada, we have sort of gotten a little bit of traction and they have started using our products. And there was a company in Canada, that is a publicly traded software company in Toronto that wanted to use our technology, but they had a lot of requests for features. And, uh, you know, we started getting the idea that if they wanted all those feature requests, maybe they would buy our company to take control over the technology so they could use it for themselves. And then they basically could, could have all the features they wanted. And in the end of the company, we saw very little other way than try to sell the company at that time, I think. Mm. Um, though we didn't make that clear to the customer because we sort of understood that's not how you go venture into it and a sales situation if you want a price for your company anyway. So we, of course, pretended that we were doing fine. We had investor backing and we could do some feature requests, but not a lot because it was a SaaS product in that mm. sense, which it was really SaaS, but what you would call SaaS today. And, and they also harbored these buying intentions, it turned out, because we were told by our partner in Canada, who knew sort of back-channeling from the CEO that they had been floating the idea of buying the company. So we knew that they were thinking about buying the company, and we knew as founders that if we did not sell this company, we would probably have a hard time continuing this journey. So it came to the point of, Selling the company in the end, right? Yeah. So it was a strange the story. So basically we went to Canada to meet with our customer. And at that time, we already heard the rumor that it would buy our company. <laughs> and we went over there with the intention of, if that sort of materializes, we would definitely be open to that discussion because we were already, now we were past that quarter where we just cleared or not even really cleared the bar, but we still got our trans and the next, next bar was just unimaginably high. And um, then uh, basically we have booked a, uh, me and my co-founder, we booked a week, I think it was in Toronto to help our customer integrate our product and use our product. 
And um, pretty quickly, they, we realized that they had a slightly different agenda because the person that were meeting us was the head of m which we thought was strange, a little bit strange, because, I mean, why would he know anything about integrating our product? And he kept us asking us all these strange questions that had nothing to do with sort of integrating our product and using our product. Was Can you name person. one question? That's yeah, so it was, was like, are you single? Or what are your, oh. like, uh, okay, what, what do you questions. do in your spare time? And he was very interested in us as people. And I think he wanted to gauge where we were in our life and if mm. we were maybe like open to selling this thing, but he definitely trod very lightly. And the, most of the days he wanted to meet us, he always suggested Wayne Gretzky Bar in Toronto, which we also thought was kind of strange because we actually booked a hotel right next to this uh, company that uh, were <laughs> buying us. So we thought we we make it easy to go there, but he always wanted us to meet at Wayne Gretzky Bar. So we did. And one, I think it was on the third or fourth day at Wayne Gretzky Bar, continuing these strange talks that had nothing to do with our business, really. Our common partner was in that meeting and he suddenly got really fed up by this thing. <laughs> our weird talks and basically said, look, 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 I don't want to do this thing anymore. Like... You want to buy this company and you want to sell this company. Let's <laughs> talk about the deal here. And we were like, okay, it's, it's out on the table. What are we going to do now? And we looked at that the guy, the M&A guy, and he just went into his briefcase and he pulled up a complete set of buying documents and placed it in front of us and said, you have, to, you have until tomorrow morning. Here's a letter of intent. Here's the terms. And come back, come by our office nine o'clock in the morning. I'll have the CEO and chairman there to be able to sign the papers. Oh Was it God. like a special technique how to make you? I have no <laughs> idea. But today I have seen a lot of companies being acquired, and it always, almost always, very strange processes. It's rarely there. There is no like standard process and standard marketplace on how to do this. It is typically. Pretty coincidental. And I was also very coincidental in that sense. How did you feel in that moment when he handed up the papers? I actually felt hugely relieved uh -huh. because I was looking towards this next quarterly board meeting, had no idea how to reach that goal and get our next tranche released. So here there was a, a offer to buy the company and we went there with that as a potential good case scenario. So that was great. But later that day, we had an online board meeting. And in that board meeting, we basically went on as a normal board meeting, but then there was this other in the end, and the chairman of the board, who was representative of one of the VCs, said that the shareholders had decided to, board had decided to fire the founders on immediate notice. Yeah. So we were fired right then there and relieved of our duty immediately. And uh, there was an interim CEO on the call presenting himself. And... I must admit that I was pretty, we were pretty shocked at the time because mm -hmm. we hadn't, we, we had sort of seen it coming because obviously, I mean, we had had some difficulty reaching these, these targets. So it wasn't completely new to us that there was some dissatisfaction, detraction of the company, but we hadn't really thought we would be fired right there and then. And, and this sudden notice. How did you feel? You said you were surprised, but I guess there were a well, lot Well, of... you go through these stages of shock, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. I know there were some stages of that. And in the beginning, you're just in denial. You just, that didn't, they must, like, did they, how can they do that? And just anger 
like arises in you and you just become really angry and then you just become really to describe the feeling but then you start understanding like how this might you are starting to lose your identity and try to find a new identity because now I'm no longer the founder of the company and yeah do I have to change my LinkedIn now and <laughs> all of those yeah. things how do I even tell my mom like my parents how do I tell them I got fired should I lie to them or should I just... so all of these things but we have this piece of paper that we want to buy the company mm. so the company was acquired in the end the day after we went to to the office and got the paper signed but we of course did not tell them that we had just been fired. So we were entering into this this contract without actually being able to represent the company. Oh. And then we uh, emailed the, this, the papers back to our uh, shareholder, to a board, and they basically thought it was a fraud. Uh, that was the first reaction because we'd just been fired and they thought, mm. now the, these guys are like, they're doing... What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? There's... Revenge or something. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is weird. But they quickly uh, learned that there was complete valid acquisition offer. And this company had hired KPMG in Denmark to do due diligence and were quickly, you know, contacted by KPMG who presented a real deal in front of them and the due diligence process. What did you do after? Yeah, so this was a terrible process because our investors decided that the acquisition of the company was attractive. They wanted to sell the company, but they did not want to revoke the, the firing of the founders. So they decided to try to complete the sale without the founders on board. The problem was that the people in Canada had only gotten to know us and had done the whole deal with us. And they did not like that fact that the founders were not there, especially because in the beginning, our board didn't tell them we were not there. So they tried sort of to hide the fact that they there. And so that was not good. And our CTO at the time uh, had been promised warrants and in the, the problem was a little bit that there was some unclarity about those warrants and also the company was data acquired prematurely. So, I mean, it was not vested completely. The CTO asked to have his warrants honored. So he would also make something of this sale and some of the investors anyway were reluctant to do that. And the CTO then started not to wanted to participate in the selling of the company. And now two founders and the CTO was unavailable for the due diligence. It meant that G, the acquirer here basically told the board, there's something going on here. Due diligence, we found some irregularities. We cannot get a hold of these key people. We are now pulling our offer to buy the company. So the company just fell down? Yeah, but then the investors obviously realized the mistake. Mm. <laughs> it came a bit late. It came a little bit late. And I got a phone call from the chairman basically saying, we want to reinstate you in the company if you can get this deal back on track. Because at this point, I mean, there was, it was either that or the company would close. So I was reinstated back into the company, tried to get the deal back on track, managed to get the deal back on track. But unfortunately, when you do that, it gives the acquirer a chance to renegotiate mm -hmm. the terms of that deal. Mm -hmm. And those terms were definitely less favorable than the first terms of the deal because they knew that the choice at the time. So in the end, the company uh, basically was acquired and I spent half a year traveling to Canada to help them integrate the product in the end. And that was the story. Just out of curiosity, 
during that board meeting, did you tell them about the acquisition offer? We did not at the time okay. because it hadn't been signed yet. Yeah. So we wanted to wait until we had a signature. Wasn't that tempting to say when, when they told you, we're yes, going to let you go? But uh, actually, that wasn't the first acquisition offer we have gotten. We okay. had actually gotten a couple of acquisition offers before. So for the board, I, I mean, and but many acquisition offers are sort of just an offer and mm. uh, interest, and then it just doesn't really become anything, really. So when you've been through a couple of those things, you start waiting until there's something on paper. Okay. So at the time, I think it was our third acquisition offer. And so normally when, when I hear about acquisitions, there's almost always a term that binds the founder team to the to the company for one, two, three years. That was not the case in this? That was not the case because they didn't buy the team in the end because the team weren't there. Of course. So there were no founder, there were no CTO and so on. So, but we were bound by a consultancy agreement. So I had to work for the company helping yeah. integrate this for half a year. Okay. So yes, in that case there were, but you're right. Because they, it was basically a technology sale. They bought the technology and the integration, but they did take the team in the end. The first deal would have taken the team and the company and, the, and you just mm. took the technology. So you're right. That's, that's the very, that's typically you need mm. to work for the acquirer for a piece of, uh, for a period of time. As you moved on, you became an investor right away. Why to become an investor and not the founder again? That's a good question. I thought I wanted to be a founder again because I felt that it hadn't ended the way I wanted it to. And I wanted to redeem myself and show that I could build a company and exit it in the right way and not in the way that my company ended. So I actually did try to start a, a startup. But then uh, I talked to one of the investors in the company, which was Accelerase. Uh, and I had had a really good uh, relationship to uh, Peter Torsonson, who was the founder of Accelerates, and he had been very helpful and very understanding through the whole situation as well. So he was one of the people I felt safe uh, approaching. I said, I have this new idea. And Peter basically said, okay, that's great. If you want, we can invest in your company as the first investor. We'll give you a little bit of money. We can give you a a, you know, a spot at, at our accelerating, you start your next company with backing from us. And uh, I basically said yes to that. And I became what you would call an entrepreneur in residence. So basically got a seat in here and be able to start my next company with a little bit of funding from Accelerates. Uh, at the time, I didn't really know what to do. So he basically just invested in me wow. because he has seen sort of, <laughs> see that my tenacity, I would, I would assume at the time. And the thing was that he wanted me to help out a little bit. So when there was uh, companies they were looking at investing in, he would like me to spar a little bit with the startups, maybe spar with the investment managers here at Accelerates around the companies. And so I started doing that and I thought I loved that part because I had just been through this hell mm -hmm. basically of just learning about, just been through all of these immensely painful lessons tried all these things myself for the past five years. And many of the people I met and who had accelerators at the time didn't really have that founder background like me. So I, I just were able to provide a lot of value. And all the startup founders like to talk to someone who actually had been through that themselves. So they could sense that empathy, I think. And that started doing that more and more. And slowly my own startup ideas started fading. And I started to see that I could play a really important role and I really have a great, you know, time helping other startups. So you found your sort of, of happiness in the end, kind of, let's say that. 
in some <laughs> sense in my happiness because if I can help some startup founders to avoid the mistakes that I did and actually fulfill the full potential of the company, that makes me happy for some reason. And I think it's partly because, you know, I get to relive my own uh, experience and redo some of the mistakes. So I feel a part of their success. Would you, being an investor now, would you also have fired yourself back then? It's a good question because yes and no. So definitely we were not completely transparent with how we obtain our revenue. And as a founder, you need to be transparent about this thing to your investor. But I think I would never put a startup founder in that situation as I mm -hmm. put myself in at the time. So the thing was that at the time, I sensed anyway that our investors were a little bit taking advantage of the situation sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. pushing us to set high expectation, high goals. And when they weren't met, then they could use that as a leverage for some negotiation around maybe something like a salary levels, bonus, warrants. You haven't reached this, so you're not, you know, you, you, you haven't earned this thing and you haven't earned this thing and so on. I, today, as an investor, I see myself as someone who is helping the startups mm -hmm. and really being a partner to the startups. And I know that I win nothing as an investor to put a startup founder in a situation where that startup founder starts not being honest with me. I rather want to know the truth so I can help that startup founder actually solve the problems. So yes and no, I also would not work with a founder who weren't transparent and honest with the problems, but I would also try not to put a startup founder in that situation. What was the biggest learning overall? Um, from the journey of screen ticket, you mentioned yeah. some learnings from the scale, uh, from scaling, right? But, um, is there anything that you remember the most? What was the, the thing, the learning? So I think the big learning from that journey was that we did not ever really understand our customers. And that was the problem with both of these companies. We weren't insiders. We were not event organizers. And in the screen ticket period, we were not working in the advertising industry. We didn't really understand that industry. So that means that we did not adequately build a business model where everyone would win from selling and using our product. And that is extremely important that you do this. As Essentially, we, to some ex extent, replaced other budgets where these providers would have made a lot more money on selling their technology. For example, let me give you an example. Let's say that you are a big advertiser and you are going to spend a hundred million on an advertising campaign. Hmm. Let's say that you spend 10 of those millions with screen ticket, right? You will get something out of that, but you could also spend those 10 millions with some other advertising media. You could essentially have more banner advertisements for that. You could have put social media banners or something. There were definitely providers of these advertising, other advertising products that made it a lot more lucrative for various advertising media agencies and advertising agencies to push their product. And it might also have been directly more interesting for, for these uh, advertisers to buy a lot from them. Essentially, maybe because they would get some kind of benefits from them. We didn't really think in those terms. We just, this is our software. It costs this and use it and it's cheap and it works. We didn't really understand all the incentives that goes on mm -hmm. in the industry. 
and really how things are being sold and pushed through all these decision makers. And uh, this is something I'm keenly aware of today because that was one of the things that made us unable to sell abroad because we didn't understand all of the stakeholders. We didn't understand the complexity of those sales and we didn't understand all the incentives. So we couldn't unlock the sales in other countries because we didn't really understand how they worked. What would you do differently if you knew what you know now? I would obtain what we call today at Accelerate's original insight. And it is a term that we have started to define about the founder's level of insight into their customers and, and the way they work today and the product they use today and the incentives and the decision-making process. Original insight captures all of those things. So basically knowing the business as an insider, that is when you have insight. And if it's original, it's because you have it, you collected it yourself, which means that the knowledge you have is so built into you that it's practical and you can act on it and you can make decision based. So startup founders today need to have original insight. Sometimes you're not born with originals, but you, then you need to acquire it pretty quickly. So what I would have done today, for example, would is that instead of launching in seven countries, I would have chosen one, maybe market to and go there and immerse myself into the industry, into the business, mm. talk to people who worked in it, hold handing this the first couple of sales through the entire process, asking to be part of every meeting they would allow me to just an observer, just to understand how are they making decisions, cultivate uh, coaches within each organization who could tell me what happened after in, during the meeting and what was the pros and cons and when my product was discussed, was it even discussed, was it an important agenda? If it was discussed, what was the, how did they think about it? So I would do that. So I really understood sort of all the incentives, all the structures. So I could hear what kind of competitors are they talking about? No, but we tried this other thing before. Sometimes it's these institutional memories of an organization that determines how they look upon your product. Maybe they tried competitive before, they're exactly like yours, and it has nothing to do with you, but it's a category of saying, but we tried mobile efforts before it didn't work, right? But we had no insight into all of these things. So we just put the product and waited for them to call us back. It worked a couple of weeks later yeah. and waited on their decision. And it was, yes, it was, yeah. And we didn't know why. And it was no, it was like, damn it, let's try a new come customer. I, just before we uh, we wrap up, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which was about um, connecting your identity to the company you had founded and telling people about how it, it actually failed, um, for you at least. How did you come about that and what, what did you learn from having to face that fear? I spent, after my startup, I basically spent a year not doing anything after screen ticket, because I, I did get a little bit of money out of the sales. I didn't have to work. So I just spent a year thinking and writing. And today I have a blog and many of those blog posts are actually scribbles from that time. It's actually a very good blog. You should, if you are a founder, you should look at it. Mm -hmm. It's it's golden mine. Thank you. And, and that's because I think many of these things have been thought, I really thought a lot about these. I had an entire year just thinking and trying to redefine myself in some sense and tried to come to terms with, I was no longer the startup founder. Because at the time I found some pride in that identity. It was a generation of this first startup founders uh, coming uh, out of them, really, or maybe the second generation, but the first generation was but really the, the first like tech founders. It was when Y Combinator was started back in 2007. So we were part of the whole first wave of startup founders, accelerators, seed VC funded companies. So definitely found a lot of pride in that and had to come to terms with basically now being 
you know, nobody or definitely not having a job. Uh, my company was never famous enough to really make the news and people didn't know who I was. So I couldn't even say, hey, I was the founder of, you know, uh, because they, what company <laughs> hadn't heard about it. Uh, but now I was in my mid-30s and hadn't really anything to show for it that, that people could recognize. So, yeah, that was a, it was a time when I really learned what was important for me and what defined me, and that was learning. I, I quickly realized that, so that my purpose uh, was to learn, and that was my identity to someone who learns all the time, and that no one could take away from me. It wasn't dependent on a title. It was accolade. It was I had, had collected learnings that very few people had tried at that point in time. How did you find it out? about yourself, that you are up to learning? I think because I'm a big fan of people who learn a lot. Uh, so I think I realized that that is what I'm actually looking up to. I don't look up to people who drive fancy cars, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, social media influence. I don't even have a social media profile. I have a pro LinkedIn profile, but that's it. I don't have Instagram, I don't have Facebook, I don't have anything like that. I don't look up to people who are famous. Uh, I look up to people who learn a lot and that I have always done and I think that is really uh, when it dawned to me I want to be one of those people that's a good thought we are basically our idols kind of thing <laughs> or at least our thinking uh, if you could choose would you go through the journey of screen ticket again do you think it was worth it overall it's one of those questions that is extremely difficult right because that shapes you and it is what has caused me to be here today and be able to speak to so many startup founders with an original story that they can resonate with and gives me some street cred in, in, in being able to talk to them. But obviously, I mean, I would, a big part of me would have wanted that journey to end in a different way, to actually be able to fulfill the promise of the company. I think at the time, we were one of the companies that could have become a, a significant player in the mobile content creation industry that was booming. We were one of the first companies that were able to make something that worked on all phones. And we did have the flagship and referral customers to actually uh, build something of significance. But uh, that's just not the, the way it went. Yeah, but that's life. Sometimes it's rough, but in the end it's worth it. And uh... Well, today I love being a startup uh, investor. I love being on the other side. I love helping startups. So in that sense, there is absolutely nothing I wanted to change. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. It was a very nice conversation. I loved it. So thanks a lot. And again, uh, visit his blog. Awesome. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to get in touch with David Wenzel, you can reach out to him via LinkedIn. That's David, V-E-N-T-C-E-L. If you want more tips from him, visit tools.accelerace.io or find his blog on davidvensel.com. And press that follow button to get notified when we upload new episodes with inspiring founders. Cheers!